Section 6 of The Red Laugh by Leonid Andreev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Part 2 Fragments 10 through 12. Fragment 10. Happily, he died last week on Friday. I say happily and repeat that my brother's death was a great blessing to him. A cripple with no legs, palsied, with a smitten soul. He was terrible and piteous to his senseless, creative ecstasy. Ever since that night he wrote for two months, without leaving his chair, refusing all food, weeping and scolding whenever we wheeled him away from his table even for a short time. He moved his dry pen over the paper with wonderful rapidity, throwing aside page after page and kept on writing and writing. Sleep deserted him, and only twice did we succeed in putting him to bed for a few hours thanks to a strong narcotic. But later, even a narcotic was powerless to conquer his senseless creative ecstasy. At his order, the curtains were kept drawn over all the windows the whole day long, and the lamp was allowed to burn, giving the illusion of night, while he rode on, smoking one cigarette after another. Apparently he was happy, and I never happened to meet any healthy person with such an inspired face. The face of a prophet or of a great poet. He became extremely emaciated with the waxen transparency of a corpse or of an ascetic, and his hair grew quite gray. He began his senseless work, a comparatively young man, but finished it an old one. Sometimes he hurried on his work, writing more than usual, and his pen would stick into the pages and break, but he never noticed it. At such times one durst not touch him, for at the slightest contact he was overtaken by fits of tears and laughter, but sometimes, very rarely, he rested blissfully from his work and talked to me affably, each time asking the same questions. Who was I? What was my name? And since when had I taken up literature? And then he would condescendingly tell, always using the same words, what an absurd fright he had had at the thought that he had lost his memory and was incapable of work, and how splendidly he had refuted the insane supposition there and then by beginning his great immortal work about the flowers and songs. Of course, I do not count upon being recognized by my contemporaries, he would say proudly and unassumingly at the same time, putting his trembling hand on the heap of empty sheets. But the future, the future, will understand my idea. He never once remembered the war or his wife and son. The mirage of his endless work engrossed his attention so undividedly that it is doubtful whether he was conscious of anything else. One could walk and talk in his presence. He noticed nothing, and not for an instant did his face lose its expression of terrible tension and inspiration. In the stillness of the night when everybody was asleep and he alone wove untiringly the endless thread of insanity... He seemed terrible, and only his mother and I ventured to approach him. Once I tried to give him a pencil instead of his dry pen, thinking that perhaps he really wrote something, but on the paper there remained only hideous lines, broken, crooked, devoid of any sense, and he died in the night at his work. I knew my brother well, and his insanity did not come as a surprise to me. The passionate dream of work that filled all his letters from the war, and was the 
stay of his life after his return, had come into inevitable collision with the impotence of his exhausted, tortured brain, and bring about the catastrophe. And I believe I have succeeded in reconstructing with sufficient accuracy the successive feelings that brought him to the end during that fatal night. Generally speaking, all that I have written down concerning the war is founded upon the words of my dead brother, often very confused and incoherent. Only a few separate episodes were burst into his brain so deeply and indelibly that I could cite the very words that he used in telling me them. I loved him, and his death weighs upon me like a stone, oppressing my brain by its senselessness. It has added one more loop to the incomprehensible that envelops my head like a web and has drawn it tight. The whole family has left for the country on a visit to some relatives, and I am alone in the house, the house that my brother loved so. The servants have been paid off, and only the porter from the next door comes every morning to light the fires, while the rest of the time I am alone and resemble a fly caught between two window frames. Footnote. In Russia, the windows have double panes during the winter for the purpose of keeping out the cold. End of footnote. Plunging about and knocking myself against a transparent but insurmountable obstacle. And I feel, I know, that I shall never leave the house. Now, when I am alone, the war possesses me wholly, and stands before me like an inscrutable mystery, like a terrible spirit to which I can give no form. I give it all sorts of shapes, of a headless skeleton on horseback, of a shapeless shadow born in a black thundercloud, mutely enveloping the earth, but not one of them can give me an answer and extinguish the cold, constant, blunt horror that possesses me. I do not understand war, and I must go mad like my brother, like the hundreds of men that are sent back from there, and this does not terrify me. The loss of reason seems to me honorable, like the death of a century at his post. But the expectancy, the slow and infallible approach of madness, the instantaneous feeling of something enormous falling into an abyss, the unbearable pain of tortured thought, my heart has grown benumbed, it is dead, and there is no new life for it but thought. It is still alive, still struggling, once mighty as Samson, but now helpless and weak as a child, and I am sorry for my poor thought. There are moments when I cannot endure the torture of those iron clasps that are compressing my brain. I feel an irrepressible longing to run out into the street, into the marketplace, where there are people, and cry out, Stop the war this instant, or else! But what else is there? Are there any words that can make them come to their senses? Words, in answer to which one cannot find just such other loud and lying words? Or must I fall upon my knees before them, and burst into tears? But then hundreds of thousands are making the earth resound with their weeping. But does that change anything, or perhaps kill myself before them all? Kill myself. Thousands are dying every day, but does that change anything? And when I feel my impotence, I am seized with rage, the rage of war which I hate. 
Like the doctor, I long to burn down their houses with all their treasures, their wives and children, to poison the water which they drink, to raise all the killed from their graves and throw the corpses into their unclean houses, onto their beds. Let them sleep with them, as with their wives or mistresses. Oh, if only I were the devil. I would transplant all the horrors that hell exhales onto their earth. I would become the lord of all their dreams, and when they cross their children with a smile before falling asleep, I would rise up before them a black vision. Yes, I must go mad. Only let it come quicker. Let it come quicker. Fragment 11 Prisoners, a group of trembling, terrified men, when they were let out of the train, the crowd gave a roar. The roar of an enormous, savage dog whose chain is too short and not strong enough. The crowd gave a roar and was silent, breathing deeply while they advanced in a compact group with their hands in their pockets, smiling with their white lips as if currying favor, and stepping out in such a manner as if somebody was just going to strike them with a long stick under their knees from behind. But one of them walked at a short distance from the others, calm, serious, without a smile, and when my eyes met his black ones, I saw a bare, open hatred in them. I saw clearly that he despised me and thought me capable of anything. If I were to begin killing him, unarmed as he was, he would not have cried out or tried to defend or right himself. He considered me capable of anything. I ran along together with the crowd to meet his gaze once more and only succeeded as they were entering a house. He went in the last, letting his companions pass before him, and glanced at me once more. And then I saw such pain, such an abyss of horror and insanity in his big black eyes, as if I had looked into the most wretched soul on earth. "'Who is that with the eyes?' I asked of a soldier of the escort. "'An officer, a madman. There are many such.' What is his name? He does not say, and his countrymen don't know him. A stranger they picked up. He has been saved from hanging himself once already. But what is there to be done? And the soldier made a vague gesture and disappeared in the door. And now this evening I am thinking of him. He is alone amidst the enemy, who in his opinion are capable of doing anything with him. And his own people do not know him. He keeps silence and waits patiently for the moment when he will be able to go out of this world altogether. I do not believe that he is mad, and he is no coward. He was the only one who held himself with dignity in that group of trembling, terrified men whom apparently he does not regard as his own people. What is he really thinking about? What a depth of despair must be in the soul of that man who, dying, does not wish to name himself. Why give his name? He is done with life and men. He has grasped their real value and notices none around him. Either his own people or strangers shout, rage, and threaten as they will. I made inquiries about him. He was taken in the last terrible battle, during which several tens of thousands of men lost their lives and he showed no resistance when he was being taken prisoner. He was unarmed for some reason or other, and when the soldier, not having noticed it, struck him with his sword, he did not get up or try to act in self-defense. But the wound, 
unhappily for him, was a slight one. But maybe he is really mad? The soldier said there were many such. Fragment 12 It is beginning. When I entered my brother's study yesterday evening, he was sitting in his armchair at his table heaped with books. The hallucination disappeared the moment I lighted a candle, but for a long time I could not bring myself to sit down in the armchair that he had occupied. At first it was terrifying. The empty rooms in which one was constantly hearing rustlings and crackings were the cause of this dread. But afterwards I even liked it. Better he than somebody else. Nevertheless, I did not leave the armchair the whole evening. It seemed to me that if I were to get up, he would instantly sit down in my place. And I left the room very quickly without looking round. The lamps ought to have been lit in all the rooms, but was it worthwhile? It would have been perhaps worse if I had seen anything by lamplight. As it was, there was still room for doubt. Today I entered with a candle, and there was nobody in the armchair. Evidently it must have been only a shadow. Again I went to the station. I go there every morning now, and saw a whole carriage full of our mad soldiers. It was not open, but shunted onto another line, and I had time to see several faces through the windows. They were terrible, especially one, fearfully drawn the color of a lemon, with an open black mouth and fixed eyes. It was so like a mask of horror that I could not tear my eyes away from it, and it stared at me the whole of it, and was motionless, and glided past together with the moving carriage, just as motionless, without the slightest change, never transferring its gaze for an instant. If it were to appear before me this minute in that dark door, I do not believe I should be able to hold out. I made inquiries. There were twenty-two men. The infection is spreading. The papers are hushing up something, and I believe there is something wrong in our town, too. Black, closely shut carriages have made their appearance. I counted six during one day in different parts of the town. I suppose I shall also go off in one of them one of these days and the papers clamor for fresh troops and more blood every day, and I am beginning to understand less and less what it all means. Yesterday I read an article full of suspicion, stating that there were many spies and traitors amongst the people, warning us to be cautious and mindful, and that the wrath of the people would not fail to find out the guilty. What guilty? And guilty of what? As I was returning from the station in the tram, I heard a strange conversation, I suppose in reference to the same article. They ought to be all hung without any trial, said one, looking scrutinizingly at me and all the passengers. Traitors ought to be hung, yes. Without any mercy, confirmed the other. They've been shown mercy enough. I jumped out of the tram. The war was making everybody shed tears, and they were crying, too. Why? What did it mean? A blood mist seemed to have enveloped the earth, hiding it from our gaze. And I was beginning to think that the moment of the universal catastrophe was approaching. The red laugh that my brother saw. The madness was coming from over there, from those bloody, burnt-out fields. And I felt its cold breath in the air, 
I am a strong man and have none of those illnesses that corrupt the body, bringing in their train the corruption of the brain also. But I see the infection catching me, and half of my thoughts belong to me no longer. It is worse than the plague and its horrors. One can hide from the plague, take measures. But how can one hide from all penetrating thought that knows neither distances nor obstacles? In the daytime, I can still fight against it. But during the night, I become, as everybody does, the slave of my dreams. And my dreams are terrible and full of madness. End of section six.